Ladies and gentlemen, welcome uh, to the Inevitable Podcast. As you know, I'm your host, Pedro, uh, the founder CEO of Atman. You know, we're a close community of founders and investors playing long-term games together. And I'm here with Ademar, uh, which is a massive honor. Uh, you know, Ademar is the founder and CEO of, of Covey and a company that enables a more efficient, all-inclusive and flexible car rental uh, for on-demand drivers in LATAM, uh, plus many other things that are in the pipes. <laughs> That's just a, a day one uh, plan. Um, and basically, you know, they pioneered, right, an asset light model in the car rental industry that generates more value for both their partners, suppliers, drivers, and ultimately, you know, you as well. If you have ever been on an Uber or uh, DD or, uh, you know, basically shared rides, uh, ride. COVID is backed by uh, leading global investors such as Monashi's Global Founders Capital, uh, 1VC, Maya, Y Combinator, Shift, and, and so forth. And to date, has let, uh, you've, you guys raised over $40 million at this point, right? Um, and um, again, just in the, in the beginning. And I, uh, you know, met Ademar because uh, I sourced the opportunity when I was at, at 1VC. We were actually introduced by another Y Combinator founder, uh, uh, Fancho from, from Frubana, back when Kovi only had six cars, I think. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, and it's been, it's been wonderful to see the, the, the evolution thus far. And, uh, before that, Ademar was also general manager at 99 and, um, a strategy consultant at Bain. So, you know, now we'll talk about all these things during the, the episode, but also, uh, worked at, uh, international paper and, and Bosch. Uh, but more than just, um, you know, a tier one world-class uh, CEO in the urban mobility space, Ademar is also a, a very purpose-driven person, um, serves in as an advisor for multiple early-stage companies, and um, is uh, married to an incredible woman named Natasha, whom I've had the pleasure uh, to uh, meet a few, a few times. And you guys also have a dog uh, called Simba, which is great. So uh, welcome to the podcast. That's right, Peter. Thank you. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. It's uh, it's a great honor to be here with you today. Um, so on my side, I met Pedro uh, during Y Combinator and, and together with One VC. It was a perfect match. They moved really fast with such a profound analysis and and I mean they, with with a great purpose also back then and now. Again, with at Atman, so it's a, it's a great honor to to do business together and and to be here today. Thank you for That's the invitation. Great. Absolutely. Uh, well, let's go back to your childhood, you know, and start back when you were about uh, uh, twelve, and you were uh, you were living in the U.S. actually, right? Because your 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 father was doing a post uh, doctorate, right? Yeah, that's that's right. But so I'll I'll move one step behind my 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 childhood, uh, and I don't know if you if you are familiar with with that. I don't know if I ever told you this, uh, but my mom she's a social worker. So basically, she graduated as a social worker, and my dad is an engineer. And I will start with my mom before my dad, and then um, not be, because I prefer any of those. They're they're still married and have a great relationship with with both. Um, but with my mom, so she gave me a bit of a, a purpose-driven mindset, and she actually found uh, an NGO which was basically giving 
uh, woman, child, uh, woman with uh, to, from two years old to 15 years old, uh, basically home. And she basically did this uh, by herself together with, um, they, they raised uh, funds. They didn't have any money to do it. She did that uh, for, for just because of the impact that she, she had. Uh, she did this in Jabuticabal, which is a very small city uh, in the center of uh, Sao Paulo. And now, more than 20 years later, she, uh, the, the organization grew. And now they do also uh, men's or boys, let's say. They have about 30 boys there. So uh, in the beginning of my childhood, I, I like to say I have many many sisters beside my my blood sister, uh, who she's now uh, uh, studying to be a a, a, um, uh, a lawyer, basically. And, That's awesome. And yeah, so and I don't know if I ever told you that. Uh, no, I before, didn't. But, but now <laughs> a lot of your um, your kindness and many of the spirituality conversations that we've had during these past few years, they they, they make a lot of sense, right? Because it's a uh, um, that's interesting. So how does it work? Basically, she has an NGO and it's for, um, you know, kids that are in, in poverty conditions that just need um, mentorship and access to education, health, cert- like well, what's the deal? No. So, so basically she, as a social worker, she basically picked up kids that was basically left from their families and they give her a home. So basically they have, so it's an orphanage. Uh, okay. So not for the check, exactly. <laughs> Better word in English. Murfanato, uh, exactly. Exactly. And, and yeah, and basically, and then she uh, she basically did her career, let's say, after that she became the social secretary of uh, Jabuticabal, and then she became a social secretary for all the mid-sized cities in the state of Sao Paulo. And then she left politics in a sense, so she never liked that, and, and, and basically continued with the, the NGO. So how is it growing up in a, because you would hang out at the orphanage, I suspect, with the other kids as well, you know, during your childhood, no? Yeah, and, and at home. So she always brought kids back home and, and to play with my sister, for example. Uh, and also uh, did a lot of, there, there's a lot of uh, charity work that you do and like uh, lunches that you raise capital, raise funds. Um, there's like, you're always like side by side with her. I think this was something that was part of my, my childhood. Uh, and my dad has a engineer now connecting a bit of the dots. And he was also uh, from the Masonaria. Um, I don't know this is English. Freemasons. Uh, Freemasons that does all, all the same things. So they are basically working together in many different causes. Um, and, and my dad was a university professor, like you said, and, and until 12 years old, I was basically living in Jabuticabal in the countryside of Brazil. And then my dad went to do his postdoctor in Florida and Gainesville in the University of Florida. So that was my first international experience and I lived there for, for almost two years. Um, so, so yeah, that's an uh, interesting fact that you didn't know about my previous <laughs> childhood. No, before the, but, it, but the it's, now you, you, it's interesting because you said about, you know, just the, the fundraising for the orphanage and so forth, but you do it with kindness. You seem like you're very good at raising a lot of money, but in but with kindness. So that's uh, <laughs> now, now, <laughs> now it, it's, uh, uh, it, 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 you know, there's a, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting just to observe that, but um, you Ultimately, you know, 
how is it? You know, there was a time you've you've left Jabuticabao to go to the U.S. because you're you're you live in Florida for a little bit, and then what happened after that? Because then you actually you went to college in, in in Brazil, right? So when did you return? That's right. So I went there to do my mid middle school, so basically seventh grade, and um, so so during that that period was just basically middle school. Um, one thing that I, I like to to notice, I was always a, a swimmer, so I always did. Uh, swimming classes in the U.S. and Brazil. Um, I'm very tall, so I needed to do something with uh, to uh, to use the energy, let's say. And I was terrible at soccer and all, any other sports that needs more agility, let's say. So swimming was more natural to me. And, and yeah, so basically, this was a lot of my childhood and, and the middle school experience in the U.S., the multicultural experience, and uh, also talking with a lot of Brazilians, but also. Uh, Latin American people that lives lived in the same situation in the university uh, lifestyle is also brings you a lot of uh, different uh, countries and different uh, nationalities that my my father had the uh, friends from Turkey friends from Colombia and you know how how Brazilians are in, in the US so so they have uh, all these diverse and then when I went back to Brazil like I mentioned my my dad is a civil engineer uh, basically, was very keen to do engineering. So my dad said, "Okay, you have one option, or you have four options: it's civil, mechanical, and electrical <laughs> engineer." <laughs> yeah. Jokes aside, so so my dad and my my um, cousins and my uncles—they were all engineers. And basically, I was like looking at um, like following this, the footsteps, let's say, and. and um, and a mechanical engineer for me was kind of was basically a passion because I liked uh, air, airplanes, let's say, and like cars. This is as much as you can have of uh, what is engineering when you're 15, 16, 17 years old. So, so that was basically my my selection. So I went to college in in the countryside of uh, Sao Paulo. So I did Onespi, which is a federal state university uh, from the, the state of Sao Paulo. Uh, and then uh, during the during the school. I also learned that I didn't kind of like the engineer or the technical side, but I, I loved more, much more of the business and like working together of like building something uh, to and during college. So, so right, right as in the first year that I joined college, I joined the junior enterprise, which is basically also an NGO that helps uh, micro entrepreneurs. And I don't know if I told you that too. So no, but it's a common thing on the podcast. It's just really interesting that I think yeah. out of the twelve CEOs, like there are four or five that also like have 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 done the, the this 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 route. And for the Americans listening, um, I don't know what's the equivalent in a U.S. college. Although I I did a master's in the U.S., uh, we were too old for that type of stuff. But it's basically it's a business club but it's it's but it's actually you're working as cheap consultants right for local companies that will hire you for free willing to take the risk that there could be mistakes in your suggestions ultimately right so it's just basically it's like a it's a almost like a business club that solves real problems right i don't know if that's a good definition that's right Peter. It was, it's always very it depends on the city but in our case it was always very focused in medium size and small businesses. So basically, they would not have the money to hire a professional consultant. So you normally do a small consulting project regarding engineering, mechanical engineering, or production engineering, or civil. 
And it was a, basically, in, our, in my case, it was a 70-person uh, organization, ranged mm-hmm. from 50 to 80, 80 persons. And I like to say that I did my career in my college, in my junior enterprise. So I joined as an intern, then became a director, and then became the CEO for, for that junior enterprise. So so since college, was when, when I, like, I really go deep into some of the experiences and, and this was uh, and we we're basically doing the whole engineering so basically it's all the four different types of engineering all these consulting projects basically on uh during my my college years nice dude these are so fun i remember when i ha- when i started in college and i understood what was the concept of like this like uh I mean, in Portuguese, right, the word like diretório académico, but it was basically right, like the student union. And then I realized, I was like, wait, there is a thing where we actually have real estate inside the campus and the university gives us money to just do whatever we want to do. I was like, wow, this is phenomenal. So um, in, uh, um, you know, the... At my college, at least, like I, I, I uh, disputed three elections for uh, for the for the student union. We won all of them. I was the nice. editor of the the local newspaper for the campus, and we were organizing all the parties. It was incredible. I mean, we were raising money from all these brands that wanted to get all the college kids drunk. The legal age, of, you know, for that in Brazil, by the way, is eighteen, um, and. We were running a business, but it was it was real money and real things, and you know it just uh, um, those times were were just really fun. I think that that that's the you know I don't know my my take on college education is that everyone has to go to college, not not everyone needs to graduate. It there's a there's a special thing for those first two years where you're hanging out with people the same age, or you can take a, a bunch of risks and make stupid decisions with a margin of safety. You know, <laughs> <laughs> fully agree, fully agree, Pedro. Yeah, unless you want to be a doctor, right? Like you don't want a surgeon operating on you that ships it with a bug, right? It's a little different. <laughs> but uh, but uh, we're coming, coming and back. And especially yeah. engineering. I think nobody joins engineering school just to like to really be an engineer. I think 90% goes and do something else. So it's very, very usual to do, to do that. And, and That's right. Type of That's technical. Right. Yeah. I am not an engineer. I love working with engineers. I think our... Our brains are very complementary in in that way, but um, so you and but you you still like tech wasn't a part of your career when you finished um, you know university. So you worked for Bosch and International Paper. What was that transition? What was in your mind in terms of like, hey, this is the type of job that I want um, when you're out of college? And um, yeah, what 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 was happening in your mind at that time? No, that's a great, great question, uh, Pedro. So, so basically, uh, uh, tech businesses were not on my mind, but actually, and this is another funny thing. I, I, I'm not sure if I told you this. So, I created a website together with two other friends in in the countryside called nightfast.com.br, and we coded the website in PHP at the time. So, uh, spent like a couple of weekends, like really. Co- uh, coding and creating the, the website and it was basically a party website so we we're trying to we went through to parties we took pictures and I was gonna, we created like a small social social media for the region and uh, <laughs> was actually the most visited website for 15 and 6 year old people I so, love it. you're all, it's so funny because just like with the junior enterprises I think you're the third entrepreneur that I interviewed that has done that as well for like it's local <laughs> town you know but like you're then you know you you're the 
fucking king when you do that, right? Because then you get to go to all the parties for free. You take exactly, all the yeah. pictures <laughs> and then, you know, it's, uh, it's fun. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it was, a, it was a thing at the time. So everybody has their local C uh, website and it was, it was uh, like, like Groupon at the, at the time, like there was a lot of Groupons and there was a lot of these kinds of websites. And, um, but again, it's a great excuse to, to be invited to the parties. And, and sometimes make make money like getting paid to do some some of the pictures, but um, but yeah, exactly like that. Great. And there was no social media, so when after the parties, everybody was like, "Oh, when you're gonna upload the, the, the pictures?" And everybody wants to see who is there, who was not there. So there was no Facebook at the time. So yeah, it was uh, it was interesting also because you know we would. Um... I've been thinking this is completely like off of. I've been really thinking lately about how this immediacy of social media has been rewiring how our brain works and how much we've been, you know, in front of electronics for the last year and a half of the pandemic. And I think that my brain, honestly, I feel like it has been rewired just because of this pandemic lifestyle of always being with multiple screens on all the time. Um, and um, yeah, this is interesting because you're not really, you know, on social media. I mean, there are so many CEOs that are f kind of like in the same journey that you are, but you're not on Instagram or or, or Twitter or anything like that. Why is that? That's a, a great uh, question, Pedro. So I, I never, and this is not like very recent, I never liked social media besides building the website <laughs> when I was 15 years old. Um, basically, I, I don't know. It's, I just uh, I never liked like putting pictures and, and seeing the pictures or or really exposing myself. And since the, the like the NBA, for example, was a great example. Like we were traveling a lot and meeting a lot of people, meeting a lot of places. And there were two kinds of, of, of people. Like one, they are posting every city that you visit, and then there's the other that won't, don't want to post anything. So. So I, I was like always um, not using a lot of the time on that, and and I think I, I lose a lot of information also. I, I, I uh, sometimes I think that I should be more active on Twitter, like trying to find things or learn more uh, on on Twitter. But uh, but yeah, I think it was more of a a habit, let's say, that I did not form than than actually like a personal like really structured decision. I just. No, I disagree. I think it's phenomenal, you know, because ultimately I think what makes you successful as an entrepreneur is the ability of thinking for yourself. And the issue with uh, spending so much time on social media is that um, you lose the ability of, in my opinion, uh, to just develop through independent thinking. Um, sure. I mean, there you, you probably do also lose a few different things that are at the core of the micro discussion levels. But eventually, if those trends are so secular and so strong, they'll get to you. Because the number of people that are around you that have been doing these types of consumptions are just so big that if, as long as you associate yourself with high quality people that have some sort of filter that that you think it's conducive to how you live your life, you should be okay. Um, for me, I admire it because you know I am certainly addicted to it. Um, but in at, but at the same time, it's such a big part of my day to day flow. You know, I appreciate the fact that, you know, in one day I can talk to people in 30 different countries. And that happens sometimes, right? Today I, I had call, calls with people in, you know, in Italy, in London and, and in Canada. Um, now we're talking, you're in Brazil, I'm in Miami. So 
it's um, in social media. Sometimes they are the the forcing function to generate these connections. Sometimes they're not. You know, it's just uh, it's a tough balance um, in in many ways. I'd say. Um, but so how? And then you 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 decided to go to business school, right? So you worked for some 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 traditional companies, and then was it a time where you were like, was the decision behind going to B school and? Yeah, so so basically, when I when I left college, since I was very focused on like the junior prize, I, I didn't do any like very technical projects. So my first job was at Bosch as a, a training engineer, uh, working with the team that developed the flex fuel engine, which is basically the let's say the the ethanol and gasoline cars, which is basically what what the majority of the cars here in Brazil are run. Yes, yeah, so for those that don't know, the Americans again, like what is like people are, I think most Americans have no idea that, you know, you can fuel your car. Or, like what tell us what is a, a flex engine. <laughs> exactly. So basically you can fuel your car with ethanol or gasoline or both and still works perfectly and and this is specifically for for well, I mean Brazil is probably one of the largest or the largest uh, flex fuel producing uh, countries, and especially because we have a large production of ethanol bio bio renewable uh, energy uh, instead of just relying on 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 oil. And for me, the decision that at back then was okay. I'm going to do something more technical and something that can really benefit uh, the let's say the the world in a sense, which is like building better cars, like less pollutive cars. And that was my decision at the time. So um, it was basically product development. So product development for for the automotive sector. So. Uh, I did that for for a year and, and saw that I didn't want to go to a more technical uh, business area, a more technical area. Uh, so there was in Brazil. There's also one thing called a trainee program or management trainee program. That you or basically you enter in a company or business and you go into very different areas and expand to very like from commercial sides, uh, exports. And then I joined International Paper for for that. And International Paper, I don't know if a lot of people knows that, but they do more than sixty percent of packaging. Uh, it's called International Paper, but their biggest business is also packaging. And it's very like working with renewable packaging and do like Starbucks, iPhone, all these uh, packagings. They 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 also do it. And and for me at the time, it was like, wait, this is going to continue to grow. Besides, of course, paper is going to disappear sometime or hopefully uh, faster. But um, the, the training program made a lot of sense that like you're going to have like a broader business perspective. That was the, the second decision, career decision, let's say, before business school. Got it. But then why go to uh, business school ultimately? Because after that, you still did consulting. So I guess my point basically here is that um, trying to get you that moment where you're like, I want to be a founder. And there are still a few other chapters that had to happen. So, you know, for now, with, with all the respect, like your career is still very traditional. Um, and there isn't that, you know, hey, I'm going to take all this risk and, uh, and create a company. But, you, you know, you, you had access to what entrepreneurship looks like, right? Based from your mm -hmm. mom, from your father taking risk, moving the family to another country, right? No, these are non-trivial things. Uh, you, um, it's just different, I think, because oftentimes you will see this, like the minute that you make your first money with your photo website, for instance, some people get addicted and they're like, I can't have a job anymore. Um, and some don't. And then it's just more interesting to, you know, get you to that point where, uh, so you're like, hey, yeah, I want to do 
B-School. And then uh, there, there was also a venture competition and then OptiTruck. Mm -hmm. This came up in <laughs> research. I was also not aware of OptiTruck. And then this is great chart. You know, thank you to our great producer. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, so, so let me just step back and, and give you my frame of thought. So, so basically in Brazil, it was not common to be a founder. So it's like there were very few founders and those founders were like rock stars, right? So uh, now, of course, it's, it's more common. There's VCs, there was capital that you can raise and you can basically create a business uh, with, with support from, from venture capital firms. And I had my, my, my uncle, he was, he, he built a business and he was very success, successful in the real estate business. And, and basically what he did is he worked for big companies for many years, and then he built a business. And it was, this was in my mindset. So like, let me work with professional companies for a while, uh, let me, uh, be more, more capitalized, let's say, and more experienced before creating a business. And this was always on my mindset. And during that period, uh, I learned more about MBAs and learned more about the, the other entrepreneurs in Brazil. And you have many, many other um, entrepreneurs that did their MBA and then created a business. Uh, so for me, was that was my initial thought of becoming an entrepreneur. So MBA was basically a career transition. And was something that I thought, okay, this makes a lot of sense to do an MBA and learn more about managing business, like building the, let's say, the skills necessary to be successful. Uh, because you didn't have a lot of those great examples, like starting from scratch and without any uh, degree or without any like really experience. There were, there were a few. Um, and basically during the MBA was, was when I really... I start switching the, the plug to more entrepreneur experience and, and OptiTrack was a great example. So so basically we started uh, during the, the MBA and I was ready to think about big problems that I could solve. And one big problem that we had in international paper was trucking basically. So, uh, so international paper was the third or fourth largest container export business in Brazil. So there were basically a lot of trucks moving around and they go to the port of Santos and they come back empty. And I was trying to fix that problem for international paper when I was there, like one of the logistics projects. And when I was went to the MBA, like doing the research and, and basically have more time to think and to reflect. I think that's a, that's good to do, to stop. And it's like a sabbatical, let's say the MBA. I think that's the best part of the, the business school. Mm -hmm. And and this was a big problem that was like, okay, this is a huge problem. And I know the customer that would buy my solution, which is the, my previous company. And, 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 and of course, the, you, you maximize, you know that this is a huge problem, especially in Brazil, because uh, roads are the majority of the transportation of Brazil. There's, there's a, only a few railroad, railroads, there's only a few um, uh, hydro, hydro of, um, transportation or like uh, boats transportation in, in Brazil. So basically, you need to solve trucks, make it better to move things around. And that was my my my, uh, my problem statement. And during INSEAD, just like uh, you have BlaBlaCar and other startups that they did the venture competitions. So we participate on the venture competition with the idea, with the pitch deck. We created an MVP online with the website together with uh, Pedro, who was uh, he used to be a general man manager for Uber in the 99. He was on my batch and we did this project together. Um, and also... Uh, Rob, who, who went to work for Google in Singapore, and now he's 
you know, building a business. So we together, we, we three, we basically uh, won some of the venture competitions that some other uh, like startups, like I mentioned, did in, in SAT. So, so that was like the initial tentative for doing uh, the business. And during that year, CargoX just raised uh, capital and, was, and, and basically we saw that uh, it was going to be harder to raise capital with already a very good player and a very good company raising capital for for the same problem basically yeah that's interesting i think you know like cargo x raising around get, puts you in this position of like i'm gonna quit this idea i like the the topic of when you're out to raise around you want to try to close off the market meaning uh, make sure that all the investors that could potentially invest in that category will pick you as the category leader and oftentimes, you know, I think founders overlook that because, you know, but they don't know, right? The best investors will be the ones that will only, you, I, I like, you know, at least in my mind, you know, I, I pick markets, then people in those markets, and then products. Um, so when you make a bet, I don't like that word, actually, when you partner, that's the best way of putting it, you then are making a decision that, you know, that company will be the absolute leader in that category. So the best investors at least work that way. I would say that the only ones that I've seen that are super comfortable investing in competitors are, you know, the Y Combinators or 500 startups or tech stars, just because of the volume of companies that they fund, um, which is also okay. This isn't even a criticism of them. But I think what founders need to understand when you're talking about that is just like, and I would love your thoughts on that. Like, how do you think about, you know, every time you raise a new round, to make sure that you basically put yourself into this like protective track of becoming the de facto monopoly, right? Um, which means you have to raise from multiple investors. Exactly, Peter. I think I think this is this is one one. I think it varies also for region to region, but but especially in Brazil, this is even more intense because you don't have uh, now you're having more, but in, uh, in the past years you have few venture capital firms, so you didn't have. A lot of different options, and and tech was also something very very risky. So so um, so basically, you need to really think the next steps of uh, you know building a business, who invested in who, and, and and basically, if you can get more investors on that region specifically uh, partnering with you, it increases uh, the likelihood of, of success definitely, and, and attracting more more capital. Okay, so then you come back from Insead, uh, you know, so some great, uh, beautiful vacation in South France. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and a big debt, of course, like student loans. Which is <laughs> yes. Um, and then you joined Bain. Um, and what was the thinking there? Was it because, you know, they help you pay for the MBA or you're like, look, I want to be a consultant? Uh, I always find it interesting to hear the reasons why people decide to be consultants or bankers. It's just, it's, it's fascinating. Right. So for me, consulting was, uh, especially inside, you you learn a lot about consulting. And and um, and, and, and basically, well, what I saw is just a continuation of the business school. And you're going to build a lot of the skills uh, in practice. And you're going to learn a lot about different industries. And in those different industries, I was always have the thought, okay, I'll find something that uh, will solve another problem that could, could make a lot of sense. And in my time at, at International Paper, I was like, okay, I discovered this problem. 
now there's something some, someone tackling that problem with I'm, I'm sure it's going to be a, a great business so let me lear, learn about other problems to solve and i think that was my frame of thought with consulting so let me learn more let me like of course in consulting you get a lot of the experience of the frameworks of, that you can you can use in the day-to-day business and the presentation skills the commercial skills and all those things are necessary and and, and good to practice as as you become a founder so for me the the consulting was an acceleration for to and with the the, the mindset that i mentioned like get, building the experience and learning more about uh world problems and consulting for me was a, a way to to find it and, but then can you basically pick when you get the job, say, hey, I want to work in these particular industries because suddenly I've had friends that were consultants and, you know, they were stuck in these like really, really unsexy projects. Like, I mean, it wasn't your case. You were, you know, you end up at 99, which then, you know, led to all these great things in your life. But you really don't have that choice, right? When you take that job, if they say, yes, we have this hospital manufacturing, the middle of a tier three, whatever, go there, help them make more money, like. Then, you know, right? It, it's it's kind of like like that, and it, it varies. Like uh, for example, McKinsey, they had the operational practice, and they have the consulting strategy practice. So in the operational practice, especially in Brazil, you get a lot of mining, you get a lot of uh, like other like hardcore operational uh, works. And I didn't want to go down that direction, uh, for um. example. And and at Bain, they are more generalists. So basically, there was a higher probability for you to to go to several different industries and to meet a lot of those different industries. And BCG at the time, they were doing a lot of oil and gas. So basically, when you learn about consulting, there's also a lot of difference uh, between them. And and Bain was a natural uh, selection because for one of those reasons. And I also had some friends that was working there. And and basically, that was the, the initial thought. But you do have some flexibility. So... Um, at 99, it was funny, uh, funny coincidence, or actually, I think all the coincidence uh, happens for, for a reason. So I was leaving uh, one block from 99, and Marcos, from, who was an Endeavor director at the time, and then he went to 99 with Paulo, he, he picked me, pinged me on LinkedIn, to, and I did an interview with him while I was at Bang. Like, this was December. And and he was like, oh, you should come to 99. We're going to raise this 100 million dollars with um, with D. And and then I had on the like one week afterwards or two weeks afterwards, I had the interview with Peter and Andrea, which are the CEO and the CFO. And during that process, I was changing project at Bain, and I had a conversation with the the guys that were like managing the projects, and we just landed the project with 99. And basically, I said, I want to do this project. I want to go there and do this project. And then, and then I called Marco and said, look, I'm going to join 99 if you if you want it or not. I'm coming with Bing. I love <laughs> and then it. I joined 90, and then I joined 99 as a, as a Bing consultant, basically. That's that's great. It's funny. When things like that, with that level of like Jungian synchronicity happens, you either wonder, you know, like, is it is the simulation extremely well coded or is this an act of God? Because like, <laughs> think about it right there, like six or seven specific coincidences that involve messages digitally as well as you walking around at the same place, right? So none of this is by chance. Uh, exactly. I mean, Sao Paulo is a huge city. Imagine that you had a project that you were walking like 200 meters from the place you live. It's not not so common. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I love it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, and I was just just saying. I think that project uh, changed my my life for for sure. I was doing a lot of those, those projects that you mentioned, uh, banks and all those uh, very interesting projects. But 99 was definitely like 
I joined, there was about 100 people, 150 people. When I left, there was more than 1,000. All those things happened in one year. So they achieved almost 30% market share. Um, Didi joined, like the great um, Chinese culture that I really admire, like fast-paced uh, implementation and the culture, the simplicity that they, they came with, like the hardcore, hyper-growth mentality. And all those things really changed my life together with the people I've met, like great people, great entrepreneurs, all these guys that I mentioned, like Peter, Andre, Marcos. Like, there's so many different guys from Swaps. I mean, there's so so many, Woody, I mean, so many people that I cannot name here on this call, but uh, it was an amazing experience. That's great. Well, what is, uh, I want to touch on one point that you talked about, which I think is something that... Um, you know, Mike Moritz also wrote at this uh, notorious column in the Financial Times, I think two years ago, where he said, look, Silicon Valley is just getting way too fucking soft, right? You know, everyone, you're worried about what, like the fifth flavor of kombucha in your fridges, whereas uh, maybe a decade ago, people, you know, you would see uh, parking lots full over the weekends. And this is not an addendum or like an incentive, like just like just saying that, hey, hustle culture is a great thing because you do have mental health issues and burnout and, and all of that. But fundamentally, I would say that there was a collective um, and this ethos still exists in the Bay Area and now has been decentralized to other parts of the globe due to the pandemic. But of people that you know, you sign up for, for a pretty tough job because that's what you want. And you will want to be around these people that are obsessed about solving these problems. And it turns out that, you know, when you're obsessed about it, that kind of takes a big part of your, of your life. Whereas I believe that the demise of the city of San Francisco, which in my opinion today is the next Detroit, um, you know, the rest of the Bay Area is still great. But the city of San Francisco itself, it started six, seven years ago when people were throwing rocks at the Google buses. And, you know, this is a long addendum to say that's like, you know, they were just hiring all these middle managers that were making way more money than they were supposed to make and being fed like spoiled little kids, all these benefits, you know, oh, here's food, here's laundry, here's this, here's that. And they just became really entitled. Um, whereas when you compare to China, and you look at the 996, which is something that, you know, Mike Morris talked about in that article. I mean, these people, they are ruthless. And you, you know, but I liked how you described it. You said hardcore simplicity. So what have you learned from the culture, you know, of the Chinese? Like, how was it like in a 99 pre-DD and post-DD? Taking in consideration this comment that I've made. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, that's a great uh, question, Pedro, and, and I think it was uh, it was an amazing experience. So I, I worked with Lin. Lin was he's the global head of like, expansions for for Didi, and he was my, my boss and and um, and and also my client when I was at Bank. So basically, Lin he has a, a funny funny story. So when Didi was fighting against Uber, Lin was the last general manager fighting or the last one winning against Didi and what Didi did they hired Lin and, <laughs> and brought him to Didi basically and they won uh, the, let's say the, the war against Uber and that's the way they state the the challenge there it was a war and and Didi they always use I mean the Chinese they, they all use this war mentality and 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 war against like um, war against value destruction war against there there are a lot of things that you can 
being war against. Um, and I think the, the mentality from, from Diddy is basically like very practical. Um, the, the communication, it's diff- very different than the, than the U.S., the Americans, that they're a bit more politics, a bit more, more open. There's a lot of more conversation. Uh, there is just more of, of execution, like clear, um, like clear goals, clear tasks, uh, a bit more hierarchy, which is also, uh, I would say, uh, n- not necessarily a bad thing, but could be a bad thing depending on 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 the way or the culture of the business. Um, but basically, they, are, they they just work really hard, and and they are just uh, like great people to 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 be around and and and. Uh, I don't know. I think that's that comes a lot with the Brazilian mentality. That São Paulo also like people, uh, they work really hard, and especially in consulting, for example, and uh, it has some of the, the same mentality. And the other thing that's uh, one phrase that Lynn also, when I was leaving '99 and like and, and discussing like the next steps, and, and they, they were really like help, um, helpful, and they were like, okay, if you want to, if you want to leave. I, I, I wish you, of course, uh, the best and all support. And 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 one thing that uh, Lynn told me was basically, look, you're going to serve uh, underserved people that don't have the access uh, of having the cars. So make sure you you don't have fancy offices. Make sure you don't like um, uh, you, people are really close to the drivers. Make sure so they're like really worried not only about like, creating the business, but they are also really worried about making an impact and and this so i cannot speak of all the chinese uh, business but this is uh, with Didi, for example and this was specifically with with lynn and and i think this is one thing that's also uh, caught my eyes from from the experience i had with them like working really hard but also very conscious of what what, what you're doing and why you're doing it. and and i think that's that also matched my my personality <laughs> oh, that's great it's like a confucius meets sung tzu uh, with, uh, <laughs> with, you know, uh, a bunch of venture capital. I think it's a very good combination. I would say that so many founders, we we all have so much to learn from how the Chinese do things. And, you know, I'm grateful to live in what in the West with, with in, in places where you have democracies that were founded in Judeo-Christian principles. But when it comes to startup, you know, to building a company that, that raises venture, I think what fundamentally people don't realize is that they're not signing up for democracies. I think that that whole holacracy thing is an absolute joke. Um, You know, you need a place where people know who has the responsibility, who has the final accountability, final say, and then move fast. Right. Um, And if you, and, but you know, it's, it's flexible enough, like water or like a bamboo, uh, should take from the Bruce Lee, you know, book of life, I guess, that you adapt really fast when you make mistakes, but you move fast. And the, that ruthlessness that the Chinese have, I think it's just, it's far better to, to you know, when it comes to building um, uh, companies. And we're starting to see again, other companies in the US um, eradicate, in my opinion, what I would consider distractions from the core mission. Um, and, uh, you know, cause if you think about it, these big companies, in my opinion, at least they have so many distracted employees right now. I don't know. There's the Israel Palestinian conflict, which is, which is ridiculous. Like these people should be able to just get along, but you're in your, in, at Apple, you have 3000 employees out of the, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands they have signing up petitions and spending half of their day thinking about these things. And, you know, that, that's not how you 
managed to execute really well. So I think that what China has, uh, when you have a little bit less freedom, and I, this is not an advocate, I'm not advocating for that because I, I live in the US, right? Like I would never live in China. But when it comes to running a company, I think that, you know, when I was at SendGrid, I remember we had such a strong culture and, you know, I was selling an email API, but I felt like I was changing the world every day and I was so motivated to do work and kick ass. And, um, and it was because we had a strong culture. Um, it wasn't this decentralized thing. You know, that's just, I think that that's important. I don't know what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, exactly. I think, I think naturally the Chinese, there's, there are so many, uh, the population is so huge and the competition is so fierce that if you're like, you're building a business, there's like five other copycats that's right next to you and you just need to execute really fast and move move fast and and i think that's a bit of the mentality from 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 the chinese that they they really they really um prioritize agility instead of just like the like some of the corporate governance and everything that we see on the like big tech companies that, that, that across not only in the us but also in brazil and the traditional companies and and i think that's is, this is going to continue i think china is going to continue like moving fast and and basically this is an exponential uh, curve, right? So the, they're going to move fast. A lot of the the, the businesses, and, and I think definitely they are going to move faster than the rest of the world because of that that culture that is not only the startup culture, but also the, the like the whole um, Chinese uh, culture and, and big population and and just the competition. And then when you were then you know thinking about building Kovi. What were the very, very, very early days? Because for some people don't know, but Kofi was actually called Budakar before. It still <laughs> is on the on the, <laughs> the legal entity name, right? Exactly, exactly. Uh, so basically, how how did it start? So so when when we were at ninety nine, there was uh, worse, like actually on my first day at ninety nine, we're launching cities, and one of the the cities that we were launching was. We had the, this big barbecue with the drivers that they were welcoming in '99 uh, because they saw that we're generating a lot of value for them and and uh, that's another option, better take rate, like half of the take, take rate from Uber. And the other thing was access to that job. And a lot of people don't know, but in Brazil, if you're on-demand driver, not only Uber, Didi, or other platforms, uh, you're always also making more than 50 to 70 percent of the other paid jobs. Um, and basically, that's 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 life changing, right? For the majority of the population in Brazil, but that's the only sure. problem is that you don't have the car, and and most of the people in Brazil, only about thirty percent of people get financing approved to get a car. And the second thing is Brazil has one of the largest spreads between auto financing and our our tax, um, the, the national tax rate, basically, which is 18% versus like 3%. And that's that's huge. So it's really hard to get the cars, really get, hard to get financing. Uh, all, all the big banks problems that we we are really aware in Brazil that happens with car financing. And basically, there was this massive one, two million drivers trying to get in, trying to get a job, and 70% of them didn't have a car or even more. So basically, how do we solve that? Uh, and this is basically a fintech business. It's not like a rental business. Uh, rental is just the, the, the outside of our business. But at the end of the day, what we do is access. So we, we use all the data possible to give more access to the, these drivers. 
And we were, we were looking at the rental businesses. There were rental businesses. They were not like building fintechs or they were not building specifically business tailored to serve the underserved. Uh, so, so the early day was like trying to find a, to solve a funnel problem for, 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 for 99 and, and, and with more than a million drivers and the rental business market was like less than the number of drivers that there was in ride sharing. And we saw this is a massive opportunity to, to be in and disrupt the, the, the auto industry. Yeah, I remember when we were looking at the opportunity to partner, you know, for the first check and then uh, and we realized that we're like, oh, there wasn't just one, not two, not three, but there are like six different secular trends that help grow this market and sustain the opportunity of the types of problems that Covey solves. And for those listening, right, that's what the VC wants. You know, you want to be in a situation where is there a plan for COVID to become a $10 billion company? Yes. Is there a plan for COVID to be a $50 billion? It's it's possible. All these things are very possible. So um, I remember when we realized that it was, uh, it was, it was an important day because just, just that the economical disparity between access to a car which is for most people the second most expensive thing that they will ever buy aside from their home uh, in their lifetime if they can afford, right? And then the financing aspects and just across the board, the utilization is just so interesting. And then ownership also is changing dramatically for for, for most people, right? So it's, um, it's interesting. It's a positive double whammy that it's very rare that, I mean, that, that you see that in, in large markets, but also... To have a team that can capture that as well, like you guys, is is always a privilege. Uh, uh, you know, uh, at least you know. No, better. It, 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 it's also important to, to to say, and I think this is very recent in the last six months. So, uh, we started with our hearts and our center and the core, the on-demand economy and the drivers. Uh, and again, we we landed in a secular change where people are relating to car more on the subscription level. And, and now we're basically focusing the, the whole underserved population. So we're doing more and more B2C. Now it represents uh, almost 25% of our business, the long-term plan, which is like basically a substitution of the cars. And this is another really big trend. So uh, the, the auto industry, like Volvo states that in 2025, 50% of their new sales are going to be subscription. So basically, you're, you're, you're substituting the relationship with, you have with that asset with a much better, better service. You sign, and the next day you get a car, that's it. You don't need to worry about documentation, taxes, financing, insurance, and all these other like, uh, burdens that you, you get. Plus, you get the, the accessibility trait, basically. You don't need to relate with the big banks. You just sign and, and, and use it for your personal use, basically. Uh, so coming back to, I think, you know, you're talking about some of the the massive market opportunities right within within Covey. And when, you, when we think about, you know, there's financing, there's access, there's car ownership, there's the ability of having a better economical future because you end up making far more than if you were, uh, you know, s- selling clothes on retail or serving people at, at restaurants, you know, when you have access to the actual vehicle to, to actually go out and work for one of the platforms. And when you combine all of that, what are your thoughts on electrification, right? And and um, and car subscription as well. Like, what are some of the large trends that 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 you're starting to observe that will fundamentally change Covey's business model as well as Uber and 
um, DD and Lyft and so forth? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Pedro. Uh, first of all, I think Brazil is a great place for electrical vehicles. Um, of course, there's there's also the infrastructure issue of the electricity and like the creation of uh, generation of electricity. But basically, our 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 natural resources are more than eighty five percent clean energy, like coming from from uh, clean sources of energy, specifically. Um, Hydro energy, or, or basically, I don't know how to say that in English, but it's water, 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 yeah. yeah, water moving energy, basically. So, so, and so that's a that's a, a great news. And this, and the second thing is, the on-demand economies also want to be have more benefit of using an electric vehicle because of the TCO, the total cost of ownership of uh, having better and cheaper energy. So, I think Brazil is is going to definitely change specifically for the on-demand economy in the future uh, to be fully electric or electrified, basically. And you do have like DD moving towards like building their own purpose-driven vehicle uh, for ride-sharing in China. Um, so I think in in our region, it's just a matter of time, but also things don't move from day to night to electrification. So um, as you see, Tesla, for example, it took a, a long time uh, to really change and, and be a massive product and to really change the infrastructure. So I think it's going to be a transition in in many years. So it's not going to be like in one year or two years, everything is electric. It's it's going to probably yeah. take a, a decade or so. It's too inconvenient, right, to own one of those unless you live in a house, I would say. So if you, have, uh, if you live in a house and you have solar and then you have a Tesla, then it's great because you just park your car in the garage and you plug it in and it's always charged. Very rarely you're going to need the full autonomy and you have to like make these calculations. It's just, um, and you know, especially if when you buy a car, you actually have access to a second vehicle, you know, so it's a, it's a, I think it's a good car for a family that you can be on track to electrification, have combustion and one electric car, but you need access to the charging port at your convenience. At least for me, right? Uh, could I afford a Tesla today? Yes. Do I have one? No. Why? Because I live in buildings and then the, you do have the charging ports, but you have to schedule them. And then it's a pain. Yes, we're too busy, right? I mean, you know, I don't know. You We have usually seven, nine meetings a day. I don't have time to think about scheduling when I'm going to be able to have my car charged or plan ahead to, you know, it, the, certainly gas is more expensive, but for the most part, it's so available. You drive to a pump, you pump it, it's there, and, and it works. Um, I think that, uh, and I bought a car during the pandemic. Um, I had cars before, and, you know, but the time in San Francisco, uh, I moved with a car from Colorado, and then um, and I had to pay for the parking garage. Um, and so basically, I just kept it. But then after a while, I sold it. And in Miami, you have to have a car. And... Um, the, the, I researched a lot in terms of what type of car I would buy today. You know, and it was basically like, I need the best residual value, the lowest amount of maintenance with the highest amount of comfort, um, uh, which ended up putting me in, I mean, I ended up getting a Lexus, but it was just, uh, uh, which is, you know, a nicer version of Toyota. But it's, you know, if, if ISIS uses their trucks in the desert, <laughs> I think that they need to be probably very reliable. Uh, um, this is not to say that, you know, ICE is a terrible organization, but it's just kind of like, 
you know, if you think about it, like what type of truck a terrorist would buy, like he, and he buys a Toyota. So probably like, you know, that car is not going to break. Uh, <laughs> so, right. Great, great analogy. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but it's interesting. I think like when, and I have a friend here, we were driving this past week and he has a Taycan, you know, which is the, the electrical version of the, you know, the Porsche. And, uh, I mean, the car is really cool, but I thought it was just so boring because it doesn't make a sound and it has a fake sound. Um, but it's just, uh, it's an interesting, so I was, I've been thinking about this in terms of like, how are you going to, and, and, and I have another friend that's one of our investors and he just bought a Ferrari F40. It's a $1.3 million car, right? <laughs> so it's, uh, it's very different when you, you know, when you, when you compare these things and, um, I don't know what you think is going to happen. That was my question to you. With the electrification and subscription for vehicle access, well, ultimately 90% of the time, you just want to get someplace else, which hopefully you can multitask and you're going to get there at the cheapest price with the highest amount of safety and comfort, right? Uh, that's what mobility is about at the end of the day. But then there's the experience of driving something nice. So I, I, maybe combustion engines are the new vinyl records, you know? I think I think there, there there will be definitely that Pedro and and my personal opinion about cars and I don't know if I told you this before I think cars are the worst asset that humankind has ever created so it occupies a huge portion of I love it from the COVID I love it. <laughs> yeah the, yeah that's the worst possible asset that the humankind has ever created so imagine that it occupies you need to do financing uh, it pollutes the environment, uh, not only in the production, but also when you have the car, even the electric, it pollutes a lot. Uh, and it stays 97% of the time, on average, stopped in the garage. So you have huge graveyards of cars just stopped there, not doing anything, basically. Uh, and I think Kobe is, is doing our part to make those assets better, like put that in the hands of somebody who's actually using the, the asset, not only just park that in the, the garage, and it's, it's just, uh, I mean, the the auto industry, it needs to be disrupted in the next 20, 30, 40 years. That's, uh, that's for me, that's that's really clear. Um, just like horses in New York, like you have a bunch of horses and like the, the typical cliche story. Cars for me is the same thing. Like, especially if you live in big urban centers like, like, like Sao Paulo, um, there's a lot of things that needs to be done, like micromobility, like public transportation, all those things. Uber, of course, is going to continue to scale the on-demand economy. Uh, but that being said, like <laughs> given the fact that there's there's the this like terrible asset, but it's also a a, a luxury good. So the luxury good good for for majority of the population, you want to to have it as a status symbol. And 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 again, another thing that's that humankind is is facing that you have like this asset that is a luxury good, and like, you want to show around. It's a, it's a big toy, like the ones you mentioned. It's actually a, a toy for 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 big uh, for adults. So I think it's going to be hard to change that behavior. Like people still want we want toys, and that's going to be hard, especially the luxury cars. But the other hand, like the the majority of the population who now is more conscious, like like the, like the old, like the younger generation that has 
I think the human kind is evolving their conscience and, and with time, it's, it's not going to be fast. But like you have a lot of people with 16, 15 years old that they don't want a car, especially in the big centers. They, uh, because they were born in a, in a world that you can order groceries online, that you can order, you can go from point A to point B online. Uh, so if they want to own a car, it'd be probably a better service. And for me, a better service is a subscription service that you don't want to like deal with like government taxes and all those other things. Um, so I think in, in Brazil and developing countries, um, just like, like mobile devices that, um, like we were expecting like people would first buy computers and then mobile devices, I think it's just like car subscription for developing countries. So, um, probably we'll move already towards car subscription faster than the penetration of cars that you have in, in the U S. So like people, uh, would naturally move towards, um, depending on the personal use, move towards using Uber or using on-demand services like Rappi, iFood, uh, or if they really need. And, and it's a, uh, it's a, it's a really like it's a big, it's a big need, especially if you're in, in countries that the public transportation is not that good. So you really need a car. Uh, and I think the the next best option is to sign one and and just run away from big banks and big insurance companies and all those things. And I think that will be the next best thing besides not owning one car, basically. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, honestly, it was liberating not having a car for such a long time in San Francisco. I only got one because of the pandemic. I mean, unfortunately, the draconian lockdowns in California were such that, um, and I, you know, I mean, honestly, like I bought the car with uh, Zoom stock, I mean, I had a bunch of Zoom at like $66. And when it shot up for almost five, I just, I sold it, bought the car. And um, to start learning how to play golf, like it's such a, like, I mean, hopefully it don't sound like a douchebag. It's just like, we couldn't do anything else. You know, you couldn't leave your home. Everything was closed. So that was the whole thing. And I would go to the driving range almost every day to just find peace. Um, but, you know, now in Miami, it's such an individualistic society here. Uh, where, for instance, across the street from where I live, um, there's this little monorail in Brickell that is free and it's slow. It doesn't really take you to many places. So you really have to have a car while public transit is free. Um, but like there's terrible public transportation here, which is, a, which is a shame. Like we should all be able to have, when you're talking about the evolution of human consciousness, right? Just these like free for grab uh, jet skis uh, where, you know, like, but you're not going to get wet. <laughs> And you're just, you know, roaming around and you go to Miami Beach and you come back and you do this and do that. And scooters, I would say, are probably the very first example of that. But it also shows how hard it is to coordinate a bunch of monkeys like us as humans. Because people put the scooters on the sidewalk, they'll knock them down, they won't really (laughs) preserve or take care of them. You have to limit the speed of it. Because you're going to have people, you know, on the sidewalk rushing across uh, the street. And in the beginning of the scooter stuff, like, you know, like three years ago, it was madness, right? Now I think that there's far more civilization and understanding of it. But as a society, we just evolve, you know, it's a slow process. So when I think about car subscription, right, the one thing that it's important, although you say, okay, 97% of, you know, non-utilization for the asset, which is terrible, and by the way, 
COVID has an incredible utilization rate, uh, but um, uh, which is, you know, it's a metric that, you know, you guys need to be very proud of, but the, the, the amount of things that you have to have working in coordination for car subscription to be really, really functional is insane, right? Because I remember it took me a while to make this decision of buying the car. I didn't want to buy a car because I have that same feeling with, that, that you have. And I was like, I'm not going to take a lease. I will never buy a new car. It's a terrible investment. There's no investment, right? Sure. I think... Be honest with yourself. You want to get an exotic car and you want to get like, and then you just say, I'm just doing it for the ego. I like toys. No problem. Right. The, there's the, I think it's the, the, the Ecclesiastes book on the Bible talks about the importance of like enjoying the mundane earth plane uh, pleasures. Great. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. But everything else, when you think about convenience, you know, um, I, I was using Turo and get around a lot during the pandemic. So at the time, and when I started spending 300, 400 bucks a month on rentals, but every time getting access to the car was a pain in the ass because it's a different building. It's a different car. And then, you know, the, the, the community has a gate or, you know, there's a code on this and there's a code. So it's like, it's a, it's a fucking errand and you have to buffer so much time. So what, what do you think that needs to be true? Like what would be the magnum opus, the perfect car subscription experience for someone in terms of like, you know, I open up a phone, I look at the thing, how, you know, I, I get you the car, I unlock, I, like what's the best possible experience that, that you think would make it like ubiquitous, you know? And then, so then people that have cars, is just, you know, fancy toys and stuff like that. And it's for, for me, uh, first, the, the best uh, relationship with, with cars, uh, I would still say it's, it's Uber and Lyft, right? So you, you click a button, there's someone there, and, and uh, he's going to take you somewhere else. And in developing countries, there's a big difference of uh, income. So, so you have that with a cheap price. In the U.S., it's different. And if you're going to uh, walk around using Uber, it's going to be very expensive. So, so that would not be the, the ideal solution. Uh, but I, I would say the, the the second best to to have the, the car itself will be, and especially if you have use cases that you're going to use it naturally, like every week, or, or um, that would be just like a, a sign and drive, a long term rental, basically. Because uh, let's say you get it for three months and you're going to use it, and then you you switch um, to to other type of uh, vehicles later on. So basically you don't need to worry about anything else, uh, like insurance, all these other things, and you're paying the right amount for, for that car. So basically if you really need to have it or, um, get access to the car is basically, uh, a simple math that you're, you can sign with a better customer experience with all everything included. Uh, and then third, which would be harder, which is basically an infrastructure place. If you had, enough space to have a pool of cars like very close to where you live and basically uh which is car car sharing but that it needs to be a really seamless experience so let's say you're going to travel to the beach and you just like you you don't have a car you're using uber or public transportation a lot but on the weekends uh it's much better to to drive your own car and like move around and 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 basically if you that would be basically a car sharing experience that you, you can unlock the car, of course, with your phone and just move around. But it needs to be in a way where logistically it's really well positioned uh, across the city so that it's really democratized. And I think that would be the, the other thing. And the, and the other one is it's really bad for you to have a subscription of only one car because you have 
different different types of use cases, right? So you're gonna uh, take a girl on a date. You you want I don't know. You, you maybe you want a Porsche and you want to have like a better experience. And now you're just gonna travel from point A to point B safe safely. Uh, maybe you, you want a Volvo. I don't know. You want something more more safer with the family. So so basically, if you have the optionality of switching cars across different uh, use cases or even like months, like maybe one month for the other, that would be the the ideal subscription that you you would have basically. I would add to that, like if we could have a sovereign individual libertarian, you know, car OS system that would work as follows, right? I have my, I carry my identity. I carry all my preferences that goes from music to seating to, you know, space here to, to everything within my phone. And I come into any of these cars, could be a Porsche, could be a Corolla, could be whatever. I plug my phone into the car, but the computer system and the OS is standard. So when, as soon as you get into the car, the seat adapts, right? The music starts playing, whatever you're playing on Spotify, the thing. So it feels like it's your, your car. Cause that's the worst part about like always renting or getting a new subscription. You got to sit and you do the mirror and you do this and you do that. And like, you know, um, and you have some BMWs, right. Or like other luxury cars where you have the, the, the profiles, but, it, but, but it isn't, you know, to that level of personalization. Then I think when you have something like that, where even the rental can feel like it's yours to a certain extent, I think that you will, but it will, it would require, I think Tesla is the only company that's capable of doing something like that today um, with their, you know, phenomenal integration with hardware and software and how that screen works with your phone. Um, cause it's interesting the beginning of Tesla, when the software wasn't that good, I would see some Tesla owners that would like, they'd have the, the big screen, but always a little, uh, support for the phone like right next to the actual like massive screen and over time the os has gotten better and you know that's not necessary anymore when you look into some of the other um uh, even the, you know in the luxury car market with their computers um if they're not using you know um apple car or uh or or, or the android uh, one I, I forgot the name it really sucks it's like a wonky little thing and even the integrations that they do because each car wants you know manufacture um, they're losing so much control, um, and they're becoming so irrelevant over time that they, you know, and, and, and it's almost as if there was this ego battle when they were making all these decisions and they're like, Oh, we're better. You know, we want to do it inside. We want to do it in house or we want to just, you know, outsource it. But, um, when you have ubiquitous, in my opinion, machine to software integration, then I think people will be super down to say, I don't need a car anymore. I don't want it. Um, and uh, and what and what you said is is true as well. Just having a plethora of choices across the board, um, which is fascinating because this you know this whole thing makes the entire Kobe platform like a easily a, it can be a thirty year plan, and there will still be so much innovation that has to happen across the board, right? That's right. That's right. And, and actually, it, it changes a lot depending on the infrastructure. Like in the U.S., uh, it's going to I mean, with with a lot of cars and great roads and the space that you have. Um, it's gonna it's gonna be different. So probably the autonomous vehicle is going to become much faster, and that will reduce the the cost of the ride a lot. So so that would change a lot of the behavior and the relationship that people will have with cars. Because if you have, let's say, if if uh, a ride in Uber costs like fifty or sixty percent or seventy percent less than what you're paying right now, that will probably change your decision criteria to buying or not buying a car. 
uh, which is something that changes here in Brazil, right? So, so as you reduce the total cost of ownership, as you have electric vehicles with better uh, TCO, and and you you probably accelerate that transition, and you're still going to need the 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 using the car as a, as a toy and as a uh, an experience, right? So, I think the moving around is going to be more mechanical, less less uh, brand driven. But you're gonna, still going to have specific needs that it's going to like be an ego-driven decision or an experience or um, with that with the car. Yeah, it'll be interesting when it flips. Also, when level five automation for cars is actually a such level that is actually dangerous for you to be a regular driver versus an you know uh, automated driver. I think that that's going to be uh, to be to be interesting when that happens. For sure, for sure. Yeah. And, and I think it's uh, now we're seeing a lot of not only the technology issue, but you're going to see social issues with the technology. I think the the level five automation is going to be, um, it's, it's really going to impact society in, in such a many different ways that we can not even imagine now, I think. That's right. Um, well, um, Ademar, Another thing I wanted to talk about was just uh, your relationship with meditation, spirituality, just across the board, and how does that impact like your your life? I think that um, you know we've always had a good relationship in terms of helping you raise money and being you know, the investor founder relationship, but our our connection I think it transcended after we've we've had some of these conversations. So. Uh, uh, what what type of uh, mindful practice do you have in your life, and how do you integrate, you know, between um, working on yourself and working on, you know, being a good person and being the best person you can possibly be with your day to day as, you know, the leader of Kobe and, um, you know, and also as a husband and, and so forth. Like, how how do you have rituals? Like, what uh, what uh, how's that? You know, in terms of a part of your life. No, thank you for for that question, Peter. I think that's that comes on the more interesting parts for the things that I, I I do think that I mostly need to to evolve. Also, and I think um, I think our, our minds are our our best assets for sure, right? So we need to we always work uh, with our body. We work with our financial assets, but sometimes we forget about our mind and controlling our mind. And, and change it, and, and I think meditation for sure is definitely one of those those things that help uh, a lot, and it needs to be done consistently over many days, many many years. And and for me, uh, my my major practices are basically every day, um, first thing in the morning or before like working out, and and doing this for ten minutes or twenty minutes with headspace, like very simple. And during the weekends, also uh, try to to focus and, and do that too. And and basically, there there are some some days that you really want to meditate and like read something and then meditate, which is something that I also like to do. And it's all also all, always about consistent. And I think like having a, a great timing to to just be aware of what you're doing, uh, be aware of what you're. Like what are you, or your in your thoughts and just just being aware it reduces the anxiety and reduces a lot of the, that stress. And being aware is not only meditation. I think you you mentioned that point. I think being aware is like doing things that 
makes you feel alive. So for me, I, I personally like um, cycling, for example. I like uh, kite surfing also uh, a lot. When I was younger, I, I loved to do skateboarding and roller skating, like like jumping things and and doing all those like flip flip, uh, like doing all those those things. And and for me, those things made me feel alive and, and aware. Because when you're doing that, you're you forget you forget about everything, right? So if you're doing like three hours downwind. Uh, kite surfing or like, you just forget about everything and that's conscious right so conscious is just being aware at that present moment and forgetting about all the the storyline that you have in your mind and the storyline line about your life about your anxieties about your i don't know health uh, friends business so meditation is one thing the other thing is uh, action sports or anything that makes you uh, worry about what you're doing right now tennis is also a great great thing like if you're not paying attention, you're going to get uh, bit off really fast. And there's a lot of tech practices on that. So you, uh, so my, my thought is like putting those things that make you forget about other things uh, on, on your, your schedule and doing this, those things like regularly, it should be something that's, uh, I mean, for me, it works really well. And I think this is uh, part of like being more mindful on the day-to-day. I think that helps on the day-to-day life. and. Yeah, I think those are some uh, some of the other <laughs> uh, great great things that I can say. <laughs> yeah, all very important, and you know, ultimately, none of them involve being behind a screen, which I think it's just fundamental for 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 mindfulness and this uh, universal connection with the divine, which ultimately means that also you're connecting with yourself. Um, and and what is it your you know mission of evolution here like you said so it's um it's interesting when you learn how to make it into a ritual um i think that it it gets uh it just gets fascinating because you can then start i, I wouldn't say productizing but i don't know for me i have very specific routines that put me into that level of vibration and um, I don't know if you have a specific morning routine or, or something around that, that, uh, you know, you said like you do it in the morning and like, is it, is, are there a few things that you always feel like you have to do in the morning? So then, you know, your morning, your day starts right or something like that. Yeah. So, so for, for me, I, I, I love to, I mean, I, I love sports in, in general. So for me, one sport that helps me have the diversity, but also keep like a, a good routine is triathlon. So basically, I wake up like you know, six, six fifteen, and then do some meditation, and then either go running and go running, and then do like physiotherapy if I if I uh, some of the days like two twice per week, and and the other days I'm just cycling on my bike. So start like with the meditation, and then start listening to audiobooks or, or YouTube videos. I think this for me is a great timing for like your you do a really fast catch up on on the emails or whatsapps like from past night and you start working on some of the learnings that are really not any they have no no relationship with with uh, with the job um and for me one one thing that i've personally in the last year been very keen to study in this uh philosophy especially stoicism from Marcos Aurelius, Seneca, all these guys, and one thing that for me they they 
they they learn and it's very different than when you talk about philosophers you always think about the academic guys are like just reading and publishing papers but philosophy back then was a way of life was basically uh you you incorporate the virtues you're like you're incorporating what you're learning on the day-to-day and basically for me that's one of the things like you're trying to learn a little bit more every day and for me this is one, one thing that is uh is uh, there's so many great learning that you need to read it like 30 times to like get 10 percent of the what they wrote like back then and it's about it's about learning meditation and implementing like implementing every yeah i can hear it for for some reason i got disconnected here no so. no problem but you're saying learning implementing yeah, so that's what I was saying. So, so being a philosopher like 2,000, 3,000 years ago is basically your lifestyle, right? So you learn and you implement that same day. It's not about like reading a book and like just writing uh, novels or anything like that. Uh, so this is something that I tried to incorporate uh, recently in, uh, in my life. Like adding to the meditation is really learning more about uh, like greats or great ways of like just becoming a better person and trying to implement every day. So it's really hard because you always, you're always making mistakes. And I think this is going to be a lifelong journey, but basically that's, that's part of like my daily routine. Like try to learn something new and trying to implement. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, that's why we get along so well. You know, I, I don't know if you know, but we, I mean, I re- I've written 75 essays on stoicism and, you know, it's just as such. And, I, d- I didn't know that. So that yeah. Really, uh, yeah. Yeah. There's uh, a whole yeah. new, there's a newsletter to uh, 12,000 people uh, called Stoic Capital. But then it was actually ended up becoming this whole inevitable platform. So yeah, I've written over 75 essays on stoicism. Uh, like I, I, I literally have a little statue of like Marcus Aurelius and, you know, that this is such a great gift. I'll, I'll give it to you. Uh, next time we see each other, I'll, uh, I, I'm coming to Brazil in November, I think. So, uh, you know, this is like a little uh, stoic, daily stoic calendar that has like mm-hmm. little like Marcus Aurelius like quote. So the one for today that don't be ashamed of needing help. You have a duty to fulfill just like a soldier on the wall, the wall of battle. So, uh, <laughs> so what if you're injured and can't climb up without another soldier's help? So meditations, uh, chapter seven point seven. Uh, you know, and um, that's interesting, right? Because I think you know. Nice. I, I didn't know that bit of it. I'm gonna I'm gonna read your asses. There's a lot of great books on that, like the How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, of course, Marcus Aurelius. There's so so many yeah. interesting materials well, that's here. Because I just moved, right? So I still have some stuff on the floor, but that's a, a quote from Seneca. Which, uh, you know, it's basically um, that, that one. Luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. It's one of my favorite quotes. Uh, yeah. And also, like, the Marcos Aurelio's life, it's a, it's a really recent one. So he went through a pandemic. So he had a, a lot of uh, struggle in his life. He had health issues and, like, a, a lot of those things. And, and if you see the, the journal, journal that they, he did, it's, it's amazing, like, very, very positive person. And, and yeah, very, very down to earth and very conscious, like doing like daily uh, routines, close, be closer to the family, to the ch- ch- children, their, his children. Um, yeah. 
It's awesome. No, I love it. This is, I love you, the nicest part about this whole podcast is just how much we learn about each other. Although, like mo everyone that has been here, I've known for so many years. Uh, but you know, it's it's the it's the fascinating aspect of the human spirit. But um, right. you know, with uh, with that, um, since already an hour, almost like an hour and twenty minutes in, um, just uh, you know, wanted to wanted to wrap it up. Uh, and, 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 and certainly thank you for your time, Ademar. This was, this was a wonderful conversation. No, thank you, Pedro. Like, likewise, it's a, it's a great honor to, to be here and it's a great honor to, to learn more about yourself. It's great to, <laughs> these are the, the, the things that, um, the docs connected and the secret synchronicity that you mentioned, uh, there's so many other great examples uh, of those things in life. And I think we just need to be very open and very aware of those things. And this, again, was a great podcast and a great great lear learning experience for me too. Thank you so much for, for inviting me. And hope to see you soon in person when, back in Brazil in, in Miami. Same. Absolutely. Well, I, I have no doubt that we'll see each other uh, uh, shortly. And, you know, thank you so much for your time, Ademar. Um, thank you and, so much, Pedro. Yes. Yeah. And I hope you guys like this episode, you know, for those watching on YouTube. Uh, you know we're available on all major platforms uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google and so forth make sure to subscribe and see you on the next episode thank you